Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palanker. Here on the Media Path Podcast, we are a resource, a receptacle for all of your entertainment options. We throw out some interesting picks, and if you like these interesting picks, we throw out other related interesting picks, and God willing, you'll thank us later. We also have fantastic guests, including today's. He's an iconic figure in 1970s television commercials. His warm smile, his inviting presence, his impish personality made him a favorite not only among advertisers, but among viewers and fans as well. He's Mason Reese. Can't wait to talk to Mason in just a couple of seconds. But Wheezy, the big noms were announced yesterday, as we say in the business. Yes, they were. Were you uh, awake at 5 a.m. just no. to see if you might get one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, so I just wanted to fill everybody in because you're like, what Academy Awards? Like, I don't understand. Nobody went to the movie theater. How is this happening? How is this possible? So what's going on is the 93rd Academy Awards ceremony this year will be pandemically safely taking place <laughs> at both the Dolby Theater and Union Station on April 25th in Los Angeles. This is two months later than originally planned due to the pandemic. The nominations were announced on March 15th, 2021. And I'm wondering how films even qualify. Did they play one night with, you know, the janitor? present enjoying the film. I, I'm not sure what you did to qualify, but we do we did notice that a lot of like theatrical types of releases were going straight to streaming and we got a chance to see them. And now you have a chance to see all of them and catch up on all of the Oscar noms without ever leaving your home. So we're going to go over sort of the best picture nominees just to give you an idea of what what they are and what people are going to be talking about by April 25th and how you can see them. So before we get to that, Fritz, did you have any thoughts about the nominations? Well, I, 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 my big question is, and I'm sure everybody involved in the motion picture industry wonders how far back we're going to recover from the no theater situation. Have we broken this fourth wall and from now on, uh, streaming will have the same validity that, uh, Theater films will uh, will will uh, streaming completely replace the live experience of a theater. I hope not, but I mean, if they figure out it's economically viable, I think we might be at a point of no return, at least for smaller movies where they don't have to recoup millions of dollars in one weekend. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah, and they may release them at the same time, and people would have an option because I know that in the 50s, people thought that television was going to mm -hmm. uh, destroy the movie industry. And so people still like collecting and, and, and being together and sharing an experience, especially with the kind of picture and sound that you get and the popcorn in a, in a movie theater experience. So I don't think that that's going to go away. But it may, it's getting to, it's seeming like it's closer and closer to where you could stream it at home if you if you chose if you chose to. But as far as qualifying for the Oscars, we need an expert. You know, maybe Mason's going to be able to help us with that. But Maybe so. Yeah. But let's go over the Best Picture nominations and where you can find them, because it's really fun to have seen everything in time for the Academy Awards mm -hmm. so that you can you can be an expert. Uh, so the first nominee for Best Picture I had not heard of, but now I'm going to be watching it. It's called The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins, and it will be it will begin streaming. It it's not even streaming yet, but it will begin streaming on Amazon Prime, iTunes, Vudu, and Google Play beginning March 26th. So I don't even know how this earned a nomination, who saw it, maybe the janitor 
is an Academy well, member. Well, Olivia Coleman is his co-star, and you have two of the best actors in the business, so yeah. it doesn't even matter what it's about. For sure. What do we got next, Fritz? Judas and the Black Messiah. We talked about this film a couple of weeks ago. It's about Black Panther Fred Hampton. It was also on the HBO Max. I I'll tell you, I watched the trial of the Chicago 7 again last night, and there is a dovetailing plot about Fred Hampton in that movie because his assassination happens during that trial. So right. you can watch either of those movies and sort of four-wall the Fred Hampton experience and how mm -hmm. important he was to Black Panther and yeah, African-American history. And just before we moved on, if, for, for your uh, expanded media path, there's a really great PBS documentary about the history of the Black Panthers that will you know, completely overlap with all of these experiences. You got it. And another film we talked about weeks ago was Mank, about Frank Mankiewicz, the famous brothers Mankiewicz, and their, uh, their offshoots, uh, Ben and Josh, who are still very active and successful in the television business now. It's the story about him, uh, being hired to co-write, but truthfully, he wrote it, uh, Citizen Kane, what many people feel is the greatest film of all time. And it's a beautiful performance by Gary Oldman. And uh, it's, a, it's a gorgeous film uh, done by David Fincher. So you will find that on Netflix. Yep. So this next one, I don't know anything about, but I can't wait to see it. Yes, I've been hearing about this one. It's called Minari. It's about a Korean American family that moves to a farm in Arkansas and you'll be able to find that on Amazon Prime and Google Play. And this next one, Promising Young Woman, this is directed by Margot Robbie. This girl has not only put herself in the top of the uh, actress pyramid in Hollywood, now she's a, a very successful director. Th this movie got a nomination for Best Picture. I don't know anything about it. It's labeled as a black comedy thriller directed by Margot Robbie. Where, where can we get that? Uh, oh, Amazon Prime or Google Play, I guess. Yes. And go ahead and talk about The Sound of Metal, Fritz, because you've seen that one. All right. Sound of Metal I brought up last week, and I'm not surprised. This is one of those sleeper movies uh, that nobody expects to win, nobody expects to be moved by. This was a brilliant film, a very small film starring Riz Ahmed, who also got a nomination for Best Actor. It's his first time film uh, work. And, uh, it's, it, it's a beautiful film that has sort of parallel paths of deafness and drug addiction, but it's very moving. And it's, and, and even if those two areas don't, um, interest you, it's about being able to deal with stillness and silence in your whole life. And it's quite beautiful. I'm not surprised it got a nomination. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have The Trial of the Chicago 7. From Aaron Sorkin, the film chronicles the arrest and trial of peaceful Vietnam War protesters provoked and attacked by police and then very publicly tried. I watched that again last night, Wheezy, because Aaron Sorkin's dialogue is, there's none better, and it's so dense. There are jokes and lines and philosophies and little side comments that you miss with just one viewing. I watched it again, and that's what sort of put together the Fred Hampton uh, subplot for me to talk about earlier. Right. He was attending the trial daily until he was murdered. Yeah. All right. I've got some suggestions this week, and one has been nominated for uh, Best Actress, and that is 
the first of my two selections, United States versus Billie Holiday. You can find it on Hulu right now. And, and I've got two movie suggestions this week, both about the music industry, both about females, one about fighting the racist entertainment industry, the other about fighting the sexist entertainment industry, and first the United States versus Billie Holiday. It's a biographical film about Billie Holiday based on the book Chasing the Stream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. It's directed by Lee Daniels. In the 1940s, Billie Holiday was targeted by the government in an effort to racialize the war on drugs. And their real dark covert aim was to get her to stop singing her controversial song about lynching called Strange Fruit. There are really many revelations in this film about the heartbreaking struggles of Billie Holiday. We talked about the recent film made with over 100 hours of recordings of Billie and her friends, family, and business associates called Billie. It was a beautiful film. And, of course, you had Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross, two great views. But I think there are two gifts in this movie, Wheezy. One is the performance of Andra Day as Lady Day. Her astonishing, precise duplication of Billie's voice is scary good. Her greedy melancholy and all of her spoken words that reflect the combination of her history as a beaten and abused teenage prostitute and the ravages of her addiction. It's a wonderful performance. She won Best Actress Golden Globe. And the second gift of this is something you and I have talked about on a number of occasions. It's another example of the effort to keep down prominent African-Americans in the 40s through the 60s. Martin Luther King was under the thumb of J. Edgar Hoover. Fred Hampton was under the thumb of the FBI as well. It's the whole scenario that shows up in the trial of Chicago 7. It's a broad pattern. Billy's story is interesting because she ends up having an affair with the agent who is actually tracking her. So it's it's a wonderful movie, and it's a great homage to Billy. Oh. So go ahead and talk about Joan Jett next, and then I'll I'll, I'll do my pick before we introduce that. Okay. As I mentioned, the Billie Holiday movie is a struggle against the white industry. This movie called Bad Reputation, the story of Joan Jett, is the struggle against the sexist industry. Joan is one of the preeminent female rockers. She was born in L.A., in 1975, she started the Runaways, an all-girl band that recorded and performed in the second half of the 70s. Many say she was one of the originators of punk. She will say it wasn't punk, it was just feminism. It's the story of being passed over by record labels because the labels were all men and the men were stuck in the mindset that only male acts will sell records. It's the tale of how the band, even though they were selling out concerts in Japan, they were as big as the Beatles in Japan and selling merch by the truckloads, were making zero money. Another screwed by the record company tale. After the Runaways disbanded, a thin career period for her. She started Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. This is a great piece of L.A. music history. The classic early rock venues like the Whiskey and the Roxy. She's considered by many rock stalwarts like Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day and Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters and Nirvana as one of the most important figures in rock and roll. And a touching thread in the movie is the father-daughter-like connection between Joan and her manager, Kenny Laguna. Many people in the industry couldn't stand Kenny, but he stuck by Joan through bad times and good, mortgaged his house to finance projects because he believed in her when nobody else would. Pretty touching thread in the film. If you're interested in 70s 
L.A. music scene, you might want to watch Mayor of Sunset Strip. It's the documentary about Rodney Bingenheimer, who's a former K-Rock DJ, and he was one of the first to play music by punk ladies like Joan Jett and Blondie, and he was like a preeminent dude. Wow. So both good films, and I know you'll love them, Weiss, because you're hugely into music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I remember working at, at KISS FM in the 80s and, you know, being very friendly with the programming department. And they, they would program the music by hand. They would just program, yeah. you know, hours of blocks of music. And the rule was you didn't put two female artists back to back. And I always found that co- yeah. to be somewhat peculiar. Is it that, like going to be so uh, abrasive to hear the voice of two women, <laughs> Dolly yeah. Parton, you know, next to Pat Benatar is going to be like, I've had enough of this station. So <laughs> it's like half the people no, on the that, planet that, that's are- that's exactly it. That's, that, was their, that was their miscalculation about women. Yeah. And if you put like into Pandora that you want to listen to, you know, Tracy Chapman, then Pandora thinks you just want a whole Lilith fair. It doesn't play <laughs> a, a male artist at all. So I just don't understand why it's not the type of music rather than the gender of the person that we're- attuned to. So I, I hopefully things are progressing. Yeah. Which brings me to my pick, which is also, I think, just uh, fortuitously about a, a female artist. So there's a show on Apple Plus streaming that I am currently obsessed with. It's called Little Voice. And it's described as a love letter to the diverse musicality of New York City. The show explores the universal journey of finding your authentic voice and cultivating the courage to use it. The show features original music by Sarah Bareilles, who I'm learning is a genius. It's got a cast of captivating, plucky young people earnestly finding their path while navigating the magical streets of New York City. I would call it Felicity the Musical, (laughs) which is interesting because when you dig a little, you find out that Felicity, like Little Voice, comes to us from J.J. Abrams. And a brief detour on our path, if you've never graced your soul with the bliss that is Felicity... Pour yourself some cocoa and begin immediately. It is heaven. The series spans the four years that Felicity, played by Carrie Russell, spends at a fictional college in New York City. The eagerly anticipated finale in 2002 would reveal at long last her choice between two very heavenly boys, Ben or Noel. And around this time, you may recall, Chandra Levy went missing and investigators were scouring her computer for clues. The show was so popular that my cousin Lois said, oh God, if I go missing and they take my computer, the world will learn how obsessed I am with Felicity. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Little Voice possesses similar charms. Add gorgeous music and stir. Sarah Bareilles is a brilliant musical artist with a bunch of hit records. Plus, with Jesse Nelson, she wrote the Broadway musical The Waitress, Little Voice is accompanied by soundtrack albums from Sarah Bareilles. And there's a few. Some of them may be Spotify playlists. I'm not sure. But there's she sings all the songs. And then there's other cast album versions that you can find that feature the actors on the show performing all of these songs. Uh, one is called Little Voice Season 1, cast album. And once you get further into Sarah Bareilles, you will learn that this overachiever has also written a book of essays called Sounds Like Me, My Life So Far in Song. And whenever you most need a pick-me-up moment, in fact, I recommend you start your day with this music video for her song, Brave. It is an instant mood elevator. So Sarah Bareilles is my current obsession. She's extraordinary. Awesome. And do they both stream in the same area? They're both on Apple Plus? 
You were recommending Felicity. Oh, Felicity. So I think you could find Felicity for free on ABC streaming. Oh, right, right. That was what it looked like. Just Google Felicity, Carrie Russell, and you'll you'll find, and we'll have links in our show page so you can find all this content that Fritz and I are discussing. We'll make it easy for you. Very cool. Great suggestion. Well, let's get to our awesome guest. This man was a beyond famous child actor. He was in 75 memorable commercials in the 70s when people were still entertained by commercials and didn't TiVo past them. <laughs> you may remember his spot for Post Raisin Brand or Dunkin' Donuts. His most active period was 1969 through 1974. The public loved him, which led to his making frequent appearances on the Mike Douglas show where he co-hosted. He's also a restaurateur. He's a talent representative. He opened a few popular venues in Manhattan. He describes himself as ever so slightly under five feet. I love that. Please welcome Mason Reese. Mason, so nice to have you. Hey, guys. How are you? Doing great. Fantastic. Good to see you. You know, Fritz, I didn't realize I did all those things. You did. Well, uh, I, as long as 50% of it is true, then we feel like we're... Oh, really I, 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 think, I think 99, probably. Okay. All right. Not 99. Well, I did, I'm I did, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I look at you and I smile, which is the same reaction millions of people had and why oh. you were such a goldmine for various advertisers. But here's the most important question. I want to get to the deepest, perhaps the most uncomfortable for you right off the bat so we can clear the air. Before we do that, the most uncomfortable thing for me is that photo that comes uh, up uh, uh, <laughs> under my name. I will fix that in post. Wait, she'll oh. fix it. She, she, oh, oh, God. And I, oh, that's even worse. Hey, right, well, let me just tell you what. If you have some photos you'd rather us use, forward it to Wheezy, and no. that's, a, that's easy no, to do. No, it's completely fine. I mean, look, I've had a weight problem my whole life, and that was when I was 212 pounds, wow. those photos. Well, you're I'm looking great. To, you're looking great well, right I'm, now, bud. I'm 156 now, so I've literally lost Good over for you. six pounds. We can barely you know? make you out. <laughs> I'm invisible. <laughs> so let me ask you this important question yes, and clear the air. Please yes. don't be offended. Not Were you all. allowed to keep any of the merch from the commercials? Did you get free Dunkin' Donuts product for the rest oh, of your life? A closet of Underwood. Well, technically, no. But any time <laughs> I went into a Dunkin' Donuts, you know, I just oh. picked out whatever I wanted, you know, for a couple of years. Um, nauseatingly so. I mean, I had a lot of it. That probably led to my, my massive weight problem for years. <laughs> um, and the funny thing is, Underwood Deviled Ham, which is the commercial that ran for like five years, and won Cleo Awards, and I got the best actor, Cleo, that year, and the whole thing. I never even tasted that product. Wow. Well, I hear nightmare stories from my friends who have been involved in food commercial shoots, where yeah. you know you do forty takes and you have to keep tasting this food and it's oh, nauseating yeah. by the end of the day. Well, the thing was, the FCC had a rule back in the seventies that if a minor, someone under the age of eighteen, was telling the country about the product, they were not allowed to eat the product on camera. Oh wow! Why not? Only if you were eighteen or over. Okay. Or or if you were eighteen or younger, but not talking. And wow. the, children, the children who played my family in the Underwood commercial, they're the ones that did all the eating. 
I but see. I so so basically what they were saying is we don't want children forced to lie about food they hate. Well, and, and the child technically does not really understand what they're talking about. Okay. That's interesting. I see. That was, that was the rule behind it. So have so, you tasted this product since then? <laughs> I have not, Louise. Okay. Well, let's keep that record going. But, but I did see it made. You did I see did it made. I did go to the Underwood factory, which was uh, in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, and I saw them make it. So I know how they made it, but I never tasted it. Now, it looks to me in that commercial, Mason, like those are the same brothers of Mikey. Yes, you no, know, just redheaded kids are adorable, period. No, Louise, Louise, you're, you're very perceptive. Okay. That's a, family, that's a family out of Long Island called the Gilchrist family. And Mikey was a young man named John Gilchrist, okay? The girl that was in my commercial that played my sister, I believe, was John's sister. Oh, wow. Now, wow. now the older brother with the reddish hair, he was not a Gilchrist, okay? But the young girl was. Now, do you, because you're a genius and you were a child genius, do you think that you have a more vivid memory of early childhood than, than say, no. average folk? No. No, I actually don't. Um, there, there are a lot of stories about Mike Douglas and about some of the commercial spots that I did over the years. People tell me stories that were there, and I don't remember them, per se. I remember getting up. I remember reading my lines. I remember doing take after take. And I remember going home mm -hmm. and that was the rest is kind of a little bit amorphous, a little bit of a blur for me. Um, but I remember not enjoying some jobs, not having as much fun on them as others. Um, as I got older in life, I started to have less fun than I did when I was younger. Um, mm -hmm. My career technically ended in 84, actually. Um, but I wasn't doing very much at that point. And a lot of it was really a two-way situation. Number one, I wasn't enjoying the work, but number two, I also wasn't getting the knock on the door. Mm -hmm. So I was really okay with that. I kind of just wanted to be, and I, I know this sounds very generic, but I wanted to be a kid. Yeah. I really yeah. wanted to try to figure out what this whole teenage thing was all about. And in the business, you don't really have the time for that. Let, let, let me probe that a little bit, because you were talking about what they do and do not allow children to do on sets and yeah. regulations. But how, how do you feel about what you experienced, the whole child stardom thing? Are you supporting that? Um, I, I have children, and my two sons for like two weeks decided they wanted to go on commercial calls. So I thought, well... I, I don't want to shut this down. If they really love to do it and it came from them, yes. uh, that's not bad. But w what are your thoughts about that? Is it is it? I, I, could not, I could not agree with you more. I personally don't have any children. My dog is my child. <laughs> but if I had a child and one day that child said, hey, dad, I've kind of got the bug. You know, I really want to try this out. I mean, I know you used to do it when you were young. I would encourage it. I would do the very best I can, but I'd be very honest about it. And I would have to explain to them that you really need to have thick skin and you need to understand rejection is not personal. It's a professional thing. I mean, there are a lot of things. I would have to kind of put a little bit of armor around them because I don't want to see them get hurt. 
Yeah. My kids were like 10 and 8, and that was the hard part. We keep driving yeah. all these places, and they just keep saying no. Do they ever say yes? And I say, not until you're 40. And then they, uh, yeah. then you know, then they'll say it. But it, that that rejection, I think, is really difficult for a lot of kids that don't have a particularly hearty yeah. self-esteem to take. Yeah, i got to tell you something. You know, I, I, a lot of my good friends that live in L.A. are former child actors. And number one, I grew up in New York City. So it was a little bit different for me than a lot of my contemporaries that really did most of their work in L.A. Uh, or, or the West Coast. Um, but my particular situation is very unique. Number one, I landed the very first audition I ever had. I beat out 800 other kids for the part because number one, I looked really young. I mean, I was four, I was really young, but I looked even younger because I was small, okay? But then all of a sudden, at the age of four, I could take a script and memorize it backwards and forwards. Wow. And that was unheard of, you know? Plus I looked, different. You know, I wasn't mm -hmm. the all-American blonde with the blue eyes and the little freckles on the nose, you know. I was very different looking. And I would like to think that, number one, right place, right time. Number two, that I looked different. But I also would like to think, because it would make me happy if it were true, that I was very good at what I did. So oh, I think so. Yeah, no, I, I think for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I mean, you don't, I don't know of any other child actors who were predominantly known for their commercial work were asked by Mike Douglas to co-host with him every day for a no. week. So that's no. your personality. That's you, Absolutely. Mason. Actually, Louise, I did it for three weeks. Right. right. And that's all Mason. Not, that's Not consecutively, but I did one week, one week, one week. Yeah, um, no, because he, he loved it. I believe that I'm also on the record for the fact that I am the only person to be on the cover of TV Guide that was not a movie star, that was not a soap opera actor, or a lead in a nighttime show. Wow. So that, that's kind of a unique situation right there. Yeah, I think that's that's people falling in love with you and mm -hmm. not the lines you're reading, you know, just you. And there was something about you that was fascinating because how is this kid so delightful and, and brilliant? That, that you're cracking up Mike Douglas. Yeah. The word back then was precocious. Okay. That was the word that everybody used about me. You know, the funny thing was, uh, my family, you know, took it pretty well, I would say. But a lot of people actually thought that I was a midget. Thought that yeah. I was an adult. Well, they used to say that about Shirley Temple. Any child yeah. actor that's very, very good, there's always going to be people saying, that can't be. Yeah, or maybe a little bit ahead of their time or maybe ones that can keep up with adults, you know, in a live television program type of thing. Right. Um, but Mike, Mike was the best. He really loved me. He really yeah. cared about me. And the producers of the Mike Douglas show understood, number one, he's seven. So he has the attention span of a monkey on acid, okay? <laughs> so what they did was it was a 90-minute show back then. So they wanted to keep me entertained as much as possible. So they would bring on people from various television shows and programs that I really enjoyed. You know, I see. like Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek and yes. Peter Lupus from Mission Impossible. You know, they'd bring all these people on 
because they had to keep Mason Reese happy for 90 minutes. And you get you got to interview them a little bit. I mean, Mike, Mike did most of the interviewing, but as the co-host, I definitely asked questions and, and put in my own little two cents every now and then as best as I could. But like I said, they, they kept me pretty entertained for 90 minutes. Well, I was watching some of the clips on your YouTube channel, which you can find yeah. at Macy Reese. And I noticed that at the beginning, I don't know if it was just this one series of appearances, but at the beginning, and every time he would call you son, you would say, don't call me son. Probably yeah. you're thinking, I have a father and it's not you. And by right. the end of oh, the week, yeah. you said to him, and it's so touching, You so yeah. when you said to him, you can call me son. Uh, uh, he, call he, me son. Yeah, that was, he was really moved by that. He was. And, and the truth of the matter was, he was a family man. And he had three daughters. Mm-hmm. And had been married to his wife, Genevieve, God, 30 plus years at that point, you know. And he was a really wonderful Irish family man. His real last his real last name was his real name was Michael Delaney O'Dowd. That was his real name. That was his first name. And uh, I guess for TV they changed it to Douglas to make it a little bit more American, you know. Um, but he he wanted always to have a son and he never had one. So I guess vicariously he kind of lived that out through me. Beautiful. Let's talk about your start. Your mom was an actress, right? There we are. By the way, I wish I had that director's chair today, but I don't. <laughs> that would be something I would really like to own today if I could have. But wow, I wonder where it unfortunately is. Unfortunately, not. That's my mom. That's right your mom. Oh. Yeah, she's yep. beautiful. Yeah. So she was an actress, and in- later, yeah, my mom was an actress. She was in a. I mean, the biggest role that she ever did was in a movie called The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart. Oh she was Agnes, the bookstore girl, that had three or four pivotal scenes with Humphrey Bogart in that movie. But, She's quite beautiful. Yeah, she was a beautiful lady, extremely intelligent. Um, you know, a pain in my butt for a good part of my life, uh, but the guiding force, you know, and, and my rock. She just passed away, by the way. Oh, I'm, so I'm so sorry. Back in July, 96 years old. Oh, bless her heart. So and I, did she I took care of her for many years, and we were very, very close. So was the choice to go do auditions your idea or hers or a combination? No, of either one. There was a woman who lived in our building whose son at the time was young. He was about eight or nine. He did a lot of print modeling. Didn't do a lot of on-air work or a lot of camera work, but he did a lot of print modeling. And when I was two years old, she just thought, I was the most adorable, little, precocious little child. And my mom actually turned her down, said, no, there's just no way. I've got other young kids in the house. I can't even think about, you know, carrying Mason in one arm and, you know, a diaper bag in the other, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, the lady kept on persisting for two more years until I was just over four years old. And at that point, my mom brought up the idea and I loved it. But that was when we found out that I could memorize scripts backwards and forwards. So were you reading totally at that I was, point? I could memorize. I mean, I could. Yes, I read. I when I was seven, I was analyzed with a third-year college reading level. Oh my goodness! Oh my! Wow! Now, now I think when I I'm going to be fifty-six in a, in a few days, as a matter of fact, I think now I probably read at a third-grade reading okay. level. <laughs> I think Do you I'm remember some lines from your previous commercials? 
Do I remember what, Fritz? Do you remember any lines from your commercial? Yeah, I mean, there was a commercial from a company called Betcha Bacon. It was kind of like a Dorito, like a like a bacon-flavored snack, and there was like a little poem in that. I remember that explicitly. But it's funny. I, I did a pilot for a TV show back in 1975 with Barry Nelson and Barbara Stewart called Mason. Uh, we can talk about that, but there's a lot. There's all a story behind that. But I watched the show. I have that up on my YouTube channel. Yep. And I watched the show. And to myself, as every actor was reciting their lines, I remembered them. Wow. Like it all of a sudden, it was like, like literally like a light bulb went off in my head. And all of a sudden, all these different actors' lines came right back to me. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of weird. You have another great sitcom experience. I'm sorry, Wheezy, just while we're on this topic. Uh, where I, I think when I read this, I thought that is found money. You and Gary Coleman were going to do a oh, sitcom you where you were retired uh, child stars and you opened your own private detective agency. Which... <laughs> let, let, me tell you, let me tell you something. My friend Dave Shelton, who's a writer out in L.A., he and I came up with this. Two former child stars were at an autograph show. Somehow or another, we solve a crime that happens. <laughs> we decide that we're going to open up an elite private investigation agency. And let me tell you something. Gary loved it. He was on board. But he said to me at the time, it was like, to me, it was moonlighting meets the odd couple meets get smart. Right? That was <laughs> mm-hmm. like the itch, the one-liner. Mm-hmm. And Gary, God bless him, he wanted to be like Oscar. He wanted to be the crazy, zany and wanted me to be the more controlled, you know, kind of a straight-faced guy. And I said, Gary, if we sell the show, am I allowed to curse, by the way? Sure. Of course. I said, Gary, you can do whatever the fuck you want. (laughs) We sell this show. You can have whatever. He goes, you know, I do dialysis three times a week. I said, yes, I'm aware of that. So if you do it Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, we'll shoot it on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. I don't really (laughs) Whatever makes you happy. So he was on board. I went to TV Land, who um, at the time was really getting a name for themselves, mm-hmm. but they didn't have any original programming yet. Okay. And I met with a guy named Sal Maniachi, who was at that point in time the vice president of TV Land under Larry Jones. And I, all I, I had nothing. I didn't have a sizzle reel. I didn't have a script. I had nothing. All I said was, Mason Reese, Gary Coleman, Detectives in Hollywood, Get Smart, Meets Moonlight, Meets the Odd Couple. He fell out of his chair. Oh, yeah. That was my reaction when I read it. He said, is Gary on board? I said, 100%. He goes, do you have a producer? I said, absolutely. It got to the point where they were going to send us money through bank accounts, however they do it, to have a writer write a pilot script for it. But at the time... Bill Cosby was developing a show for them called Parenthood, and it ended up going way over budget and way past due. So they dropped it. I think it's pretty clear that they they bet on the wrong horse. Oh, seriously? Yes, they did on that one. I mean, we we literally could have been the very first original project for TV Land. Wow. Such a great idea. And unfortunately, he uh, he ups and dies on me. So there you go. Well, we just need to pick a different co-star. There's lots to choose from. Not really, Louise. Not really. There was something very special about Gary. You know, I, know. I, I don't want to get too maudlin about Gary, but 
to use an analogy, if you have a big softball and you lob that ball 10 miles an hour over the plate, Gary would swing and miss at everything. <laughs> he just was such an angry young man. You know, he was so angry and so sad. You know, and I, and I got to meet him first before I even pitched him the idea. And he liked me a lot mm -hmm. because I think he realized that I'd been through a lot of the same things, that even though I was a New York guy, he was an L.A. guy, that we, we were similar in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he really took to that. Yeah. I mean, and you do. I guess you feel very alone when your circumstances are so incredibly unique that you just yeah. don't share them with anyone. Yeah, I mean, nobody could really fully understand what happened to Gary. I mean, you're you're the star of the number one show on NBC, and then you're dropped. That's it. You're gone, and yeah. NBC doesn't even give you an op you know an option to do another show. They just that's it. You're done. And so there's some parental issues there. Um, uh, you know, his parents taking advantage of his money and uh, yeah. all this other stuff that was very very yeah. sad. True so Hollywood fact. I, I was a page on the show. And so I knew Gary, and yeah. I, I saw all this in person, and yeah. yes, he was a sad boy. Yeah, and he was also going through tremendous uh, challenges with his health at mm -hmm. the time, and the fact that he was able to produce a show and get a really good quality show, you know, weekly, 26, 28 times a year, whatever it was at the time, mm -hmm. um, was kind of miraculous, really, going what he was going through. It was heroic, yes. Yeah, it was. It was. And um, he, he actually told me at one point in time, he said, I have no family, I have no friends. Oh, Lord. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of kind of broke me down a little bit, you know, because he never drank, he never did drugs. You know, mm -hmm. he was always a, a very straight shooter. Um, he, bought a he, lot of was, he bought a lot of trains. He bought a lot of model trains and, uh, you know, did, did some commercials for a few strange companies and had a couple of strange jobs and ran for mayor, I think, at one point, um, you know, or governor. I don't remember which one it was, but it wasn't real. He wasn't really trying. He was just right. trying to get his name out there. Now, when you think about your, your childhood, do you, does a smile come to your lips or do you, do you think in a lot of ways that since you were a, a gifted child that you you may not have been challenged enough if you had had a more ordinary childhood, or do you wish that you had? Well, in terms of challenging, I hated school. I literally hated going to school because it bored me. Mm -hmm. It just, I mean, I tell people all the time, when you've co-hosted the Mike Douglas show, done all the commercials I had, won the awards, been on the cover of magazines, piloted the Goodyear blimp, and been the ringmaster of Barnum & Bailey Circus, <laughs> Algebra is pretty boring. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's very interesting. That's hard. That, that is hard Hard to top. Yeah. Did you have tutors to and uh, tutors or teachers on set, or were you not on um, commercial sets long enough for that to happen? No, commercials never really had them. Uh -huh. um, I, did, I did have a private tutor given to me by the New York City Board of Education at one point because I wasn't attending enough school. Um, that was a combination of my own working and my own just not really wanting to go. Um, I knew at a very young age that whatever I was going to do with life was not going to be determined by a little eight by 10 piece of paper in a frame up on a wall, right? Mm -hmm. So I never went to college. And technically, I never graduated from high school. I mean, I did get a GED, but that wasn't first and foremost for me. Are you a reader? 
Not now. No, and I, I hate I hate to admit it. When you guys were talking about Oscar predictions and things like that, the only movie I'd even remotely heard of was the Chicago Seven. Mm-hmm. Now I am a member of Screen Actors Guild now. I'm a paid dues member, so I am getting screeners sent to my house, and I will eventually watch them. Um, but I'm I'm not a big I'm not an avid reader. I was when I was young, but now I find that anything longer than a small article in a magazine, my mind just starts wandering. So you're very imaginative and you're always thinking. Yeah, but maybe maybe I'm just not reading the right thing either. That's a possibility too. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I, I have three kids and two grandchildren and you cannot tell them this, but, and you have to put on this ruse until they're finished their last year of college that none of that matters. If you're, if you're going to be successful in life, you will be successful. It doesn't matter what college you went to. It doesn't matter what high school you went to. It doesn't matter what amount of formal education you've had. If you are going to be successful, if it's divine intervention, if it's your personal drive, you will be successful. But you can't tell that to your kids because they stopped doing their homework. No, and I, compl- and I completely agree with that. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. And there, but there are a lot of unbelievably talented people out there, far more talented than I've ever been, that will never get a break. And you have to wonder why about that sometimes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. People at 30, 40 years <laughs> of business grinding day after day, and they never make it. Yeah. They never make it. But well, this never happened to Gary, and it doesn't happen to the majority of child stars. But you were able to transition to a productive adulthood as a restaurateur and as a talent representative. Uh, Are there any of your venues that are still open in New York? No, no. I I retired from that back in 2015. Uh, Mm -hmm. I did 20 years in the hospitality world in New York City. And I'm very proud to say in 20 years, I never smoked a cigarette. I never smoked pot. I never had a drink in my life. I made a lot of money serving drinks to other people, but I personally never did it. Um, Just not something I ever wanted to do. But 20 years of owning restaurants and bars and nightclubs in New York City is kind of like dog years. It's a 24-7 job. It's a tough job. And it got to the point where I really was not enjoying waking up every day and going into work. And at that point in time, my partners and I kind of agreed and we just went our separate ways. That's it. Mm-hmm. Did you sell the business? Yeah, we sold the last bar, which is a place called Destination uh, in the Lower East Side of New York City. We sold that to a great guy who owns a bunch of places in New York. And I kind of never really looked back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the late hours and the combination of the loud music and being around drunken people all the time yeah. probably beat me up emotionally. Yeah, you, you, you knew a lot. You knew a lot about that lifestyle because you frequented clubs uh, in your early adulthood, right? Oh, I did. You that, made. That's how I, yeah, that's how I learned about clubs was going to them. What, sure. what I'm going to read to you is a testimonial to two things your brilliance as a human being, and second of all, your expertise at the club environment. You said once, I don't know what the question was, somebody was talking about. Uh, 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 are, are clubs a good place to meet women and have a talk? And you said, 
Clubs are not for conversation. The object is not to hear, but to use the other senses. I never had a conversation last longer than 10 or 15 minutes. I got back to my apartment. Maybe in the morning we talked. I never knew their names, but they knew mine. I was at a disadvantage. <laughs> I just thought that was, that well, sums I know, up. I know exactly where that's from. That's from the New York Times. Um, that was in that was in 1995, right after I opened up my first nightclub. Um, the lady who was writing for the Times came and interviewed me at the club, not at night. She came during the day when it was nice and quiet. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, listen, I started. But it was going so out. perceptive. Anybody that fought that, thinking they're going to find Mister Perfect or Miss Perfect in a club, just understands that phrase. Beautiful. No, and I and I and I knew that at a very very young age. I mean, I started going to nightclubs in New York in 1982, where I was only 17, maybe 17 and a half. But you know, I was riding the wave of my fame, so I was getting recognized everywhere, and I was being treated like royalty in all of the nightclubs. But I knew that. I mean, look, I, when you look at me, you automatically don't see. A big strapping, you know, six foot four, uh, you know, two hundred pound quarterback, you know. <laughs> so if you're with me, either you're with me because I'm famous, or because I'm intelligent and I'm funny and I have a good heart and whatever other good things uh, attributes I have. But I knew that back in the '80s, that New York City nightclubs, nobody talks. You dance and then you go home and screw, you know, if you're lucky. Well, yeah. it's it's what it's designed for is it's designed to create, invite, and create physical intimacy because A, you're inebriated. B, the loud music means you have to get very close to people in order to be heard. So it takes away all those human inhibitions and allows people to smush up against each other. And if so inclined, they can go home. But even if they don't go home and have sex with someone, they still got their physical needs met by just close yes. proximity to the opposite mm -hmm. sex or the same sex, whatever they're into. And I, I met a lot of women along the way that just really wanted to dance. Sure. They really just wanted to sweat and move to the music. And, you know, back in the discos, 354 and area and all these other clubs in New York, the music was phenomenal. Not like it is today. No offense to anybody who loves today's music. Not a big fan. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a very different world back then, especially in New York City. So, you know, again, like I said, kind of riding the crest of being famous along with the fact that there were these amazing clubs, was a, quite a unique time for me. Now, were your, were, your parents, were your parents at all concerned that after creating this completely unique childhood for you, and then, which seems fine when you're seven, like you, it seems probably to your parents like, oh, I've got a handle on this, but now they've launched you into your young adult life, and were they concerned that you didn't maybe have the tools to make good choices? Well, no. When, I'm say when we're saying good choices, I assume that you're talking about drugs and alcohol, things like that. I just mean everything, the people that you choose to associate with, career yeah. moves, everything, really. No, no, honestly. I had two very open-minded liberal parents, mm -hmm. uh, Jewish, one from Texas, believe it or not, and uh, my mom is from Texas. Um probably the only Jewish family in her area, probably. Uh, and my father was from New Hampshire. Um, but they were very both very open-minded. I was never bar mitzvahed, you know? It just wasn't something that was pushed up, you know, down my throat like a lot of parents do. 
But when I turned that 17, 18-year-old range, my parents knew that I wasn't drinking. They knew I wasn't getting stoned and getting high. Um, my parents could have cared less who I dated or who I brought home uh, at the time. They really were just concerned about my health overall and the fact that I was happy. Those are the two things that were the most important. Number one, that I wasn't sad or going through any grief because at that point my career really was over, or whether I was doing things physically that weren't making me healthy. That was really about it. So and in that way, you had a different childhood than Gary's. In that way, it was different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, my father, when I was young, he was the vice president of the Ideal Toy Company. So wow. he, didn't need, he didn't need my money. You know, <laughs> he was a graphic artist and then he had his own multimedia production company. Uh, so my, my father made a lot of money over the years. Yeah, and then you um, got to where you didn't need his toys. You had the blimp. I, but I did go to Toy Fair every year. Ah, oh, heaven. As a young child. And that was a lot of fun because every toy company in the world wanted to give me like demo toys and things like that. You know, uh, they, were, they were happy just to have me there. Um, but no, no. Um, my parents were really cool. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, a quick story. I, I, did, I did the Mike Douglas show once and Ava Gabor was the co-host. And you know, I did a normal seven-minute segment or 10 minutes, whatever it was. And it went well, but I was very frightened. I was really scared to go on stage right before the show. And my father did not push me. All he said to me was, I'm going to make a bet with you that within 30 seconds of your being out there, you're going to be okay. And all the fear is going to go. And if I'm wrong, well, I'm wrong and well, whatever. And he was right. So very lucky that I had very open-minded and very loving parents. And number one, didn't steal from me because they didn't have to. Um, and number two, led me down a good path. Wonderful. Wow. I, I, I want to talk about your relationships, uh, Mason. Are you still with yeah. Sarah? Is Sarah still? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I am still with Sarah. Um, right now, one of the things most people don't know, I left New York City. I'm actually in Delray Beach, Florida now. Um, where all the my whole family lived in Boca Raton. I'm familiar with uh, uh, Right Delray. next door. Yeah. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all the we're all the good old Jews come to die. <laughs> you know, we come to but, Boca but I, and Ray, right? Uh, I, I, God's, God's waiting room, as they say. Yeah. Oh, I, I just wanted to uh, say that you had a very unique situation. Um, this to is put it mildly. This is a uh, a strikingly beautiful woman. She was uh, an adult model uh, for yes. her career. Yes. And uh, you took a lot of heat uh, on the Internet and, and in I your did. personal life because people uh, and I, I guess there was sort of a protective aspect to it. People thought that maybe this gorgeous woman was taking advantage of you either for your money or for your fame. And yeah. you said something quite beautiful when you were describing the relationship. You said, I didn't think that this really beautiful young adult model would find anything remotely fascinating about a 54-year-old man. When you meet someone and end up talking for three hours effortlessly, no pauses, no breaks, 
no uncomfortable moments of real silence. That's kind of unusual. And I think she it felt is. the same as me. I, I just found that to be very touching. And so yeah, you don't you shut did, down all the questions. Spritz. I'm, 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 I'm very impressed. Um, yeah, I mean, look, to, to say that the relationship is perfect would be an overstatement. I mean, I'm not particularly happy with some of the things that she does professionally, but that is how she makes her living. And I do not support her financially whatsoever. And she's free to make whatever choices she wants. Right now, mainly because of COVID, the whole situation with that, she lives in Pittsburgh, and I'm here now. Uh, we are talking about her coming sometime at the end of June, maybe early July, for who knows how long. Maybe she'll even move here. I really don't know. Um, but the, the relationship has its ups and downs, like, a, like all relationships for that matter. Um, but the fact that there's a 28-year age difference certainly doesn't help. It's not easy all the time. No, it's um, a testimonial to the rock star you are, my friend. <laughs> uh, I'll have to tell Sarah that next time I speak. Please do. That that Fritz Coleman called me a rock star. Uh, Can you talk about uh, your current uh, projects? I know you're working on a few things. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm working on, and, and right before the show, we had some technical issues. And boy, am I going to have to fix those. Uh -oh. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm working with this guy, Steve Gadlin. Uh, he's kind of well known because he was on Shark Tank. And, and made a crazy deal with Mark Cuban um, for a, a cat drawing thing. Um, but he has his own podcast, like you guys do, and he wants to work with me and be my producer. So I have an idea that I, I've been rumbling around in my head for years now uh, about a project called Take Two with Mason Reese. And the focus of the show really is a half hour, one-on-one -on -one interview style format but all the guests are either former or present child stars. Mm. And we talk about life and we talk that about love. Kill. And um, in fact, at one point in time, Steve Gadlin was a producer over at MeTV. Mm. So we're going to shoot a demo for it. We're going to put it together with music and a, you know artwork and a background and the whole thing, make it look really good. And then we're going to pitch it to you know, MeTV and oh. see what happens. You know. I think that would I, I think that would be amazing. I'll just just oh, as yeah, a, a I bet that would be huge. A personal uh, just a personal aside that will help you with uh, your understanding of like what that means to people that that grew up you know watching certain shows, which is really all of us. But yeah. uh, on Facebook yesterday, I, I found an uh, interview that had that had Jerry Mathers talking to the guy who played Gilbert. I found myself thinking about that interview all throughout the subsequent 24 hours. The the things they remembered, they were talking about crew members' names. They were talking about yeah. cer certain scenes. They were talking about when Hugh Beaumont would direct. And I mm -hmm. was in. Do you yeah. understand me? I was in. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who, who fit that demographic, you know, that would absolutely love to hear the inside behind the scenes stories. Uh, of, of certain child actors' lives. There, there's a, a small group on Facebook. It's not known to anybody. It's a private group called the XCA, standing for ex-child actors. Okay. There's about 250 of us on the board. Mm -hmm. And um, so I have a very deep well that I can fish from sure. uh, to get guests. And if I did the show once a week, I, I could probably have the next three years of, of guests booked. Uh, literally, that would want to do it. So... What Steve and I are going to do, 
we're going to start it off using a company called Steamyard. I don't know if you guys. I, I, I have them. They're 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 a step up from Zoom. They're a wonderful yep. streaming service. Yeah. So Steve's going to produce the show, and I'll book it, and obviously I'll host it. Mm-hmm. And what we'll do is we'll do YouTube and Facebook live. Mm-hmm. We'll start off with that as a proof of concept. Okay. Right. Build the audience, and then ultimately pitch it to me TV. Maybe somewhere else as well. I have no idea. But seeing as that we have the in at MeTV, that'll be our first place to go. Um, the other project is, I don't know if you guys remember, a wonderful actor and just an amazing guy. A guy named Robbie Rist. Yes. Who was Cousin Oliver in The Brady Bunch. Yes. But he was, uh-huh. but he's done tremendous voice work over the years. And he's an amazing musician, has produced yeah. albums, played. He, he's unbelievably talented. Unfortunately, because of COVID, he's not really playing out anymore uh, out in L.A. There's mm-hmm. no concerts really to do. But uh, he's got a you know studio in his house, and he records music. And we are developing a one-hour drama, a very dark one-hour drama, uh, untitled as of now. But it's a female Latina lead character. takes place in Hell's Kitchen of New York City. So we're in the process of getting that script finished and then building the arc you know, the storylines and the show Bible and all the other words that you guys know. Um, and then we'll take it from there and see what happens. Awesome. So you're but very I'm busy. I like both the ideas. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, but I'm, I got to tell you something. Getting out of New York City has done wonders for me. I'm okay. sure. I mean, just being in the warmth of Florida and the sun and just, I'm a much happier, more relaxed human being now. I'm happy to hear that. Well, I'll tell you, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Oh, and, thank you, guys. Thank uh, you. I, I think that w- maybe we prove today what the success of the show with other child stars will be, that they've all had different life experiences, that many are deep and interesting with fascinating yeah. storylines, yeah. and I think you'll be able to tap into that. Plus, you what I don't, If I have a moment, what I don't want to do is I don't want to focus on the negative. Right. I, ideally, I'd love to focus on the positive, sure. on, the, on the fact that you can go through that entire ordeal and get through the tunnel on the other side right. and still be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, now, a lot of actors that I'm going to interview have really, really horrible stories. Yeah. They really do. Um, and the fact that my story is probably very different from theirs, as well as everybody I interview is going to have a little bit of a different story and different stories to tell. And I think the, the, the real secret to the show is that I want to focus on the positive. I, I don't want people walking away from the show bawling their eyes out. Mm-hmm. I want them to have optimism and happiness. Yep. Excellent. Well, yeah. I want to thank you. It's been a real treat to have a chance to talk thank to you, guys. you, sir. You're smart and interesting, and I wish you luck with your future projects. I, I really appreciate you guys reaching out to me. Okay. Absolutely. I'm going to go read the closing credits, Mason, and I just want to thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. We really would appreciate lo- it. Yes, of course. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. 
I want to thank our wonderful guest, Mason Reese. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. That's great, Mason. Hey, Mason, that was awesome. Really nice. Sorry, I'm not the time.